Hello, and welcome back to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, John Latiri. This week, we have part one of a two-part conversation with Samuel Hammond, the Director of Poverty and Welfare Policy at the Niskanen Center, a think tank based in Washington, D.C. Sam's research focuses on how free markets can work in tandem with robust systems of social insurance. In part one, we discuss Sam's vision of a free market welfare state, one that embraces economic dynamism and technological innovation, while also providing a much more generous and straightforward safety net than what American conservatives have typically been known to accept. For my money, Sam's one of the most interesting and provocative thinkers in Washington today. So if you enjoyed this episode, I highly recommend checking out his full body of work. And with that, on to the episode. Sam Hammond, welcome to the Deep Dive. Thanks for having me on. How the hell are you? Pretty well. How are you, John? (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing well. Sam, you just published a piece in National Affairs that examines the way that conservatives have thought about free trade and industrial policy over the last 20 years, really since China PNTR, permanent normal trade relations and at the turn of the 21st century. So talk about the case you're making in that piece and how should conservatives be thinking about and all of us be thinking about the consequences of trade policy and the traditional way that we've thought about the win-win game of trade. Yeah. So the piece is called the China Shock Doctrine and it's a bit of a, a double entendre. When China entered the World Trade Organization in 2001, leading up to it, there was a lot of writing saying this would just be business as usual. China is a low-wage country. We import cheap consumer goods from them. will be more of the same. But instead, China aggressively invested in its export sector and moved up the value chain and in a way that directly impacted up to 3 million manufacturing jobs in the U.S. Part of the piece is looking at how not just the China shock, but globalization in general has restructured the economy such that it's restructured our political alignments. And it's a play on words with the famous Naomi Klein book, The Shock Doctrine. It's a sort of a conspiratorial left-wing book that you know, argues that like the neoliberal Chicago boys like went around Eastern Europe and Chile and used Milton Friedman economics to destroy the world. That stuff is all kind of crazy, but there's a lot of rhetoric in there that you're starting to see emerge as conservative talking points, right? So you know, Tucker Carlson talks about neoliberal elites <laughs> on his nightly show, and you have people using the word globalist in a way that is reminiscent of sort of late 90s anti-globalization activists on the left. And so the piece sort of walks through what, what is happening here. And, and you know some of the factors involved are, well, trade isn't win-win. It might be win-win on paper, but in the standard economics textbook, you're supposed to redistribute the gains. <laughs> and when you look at the more complex models of trade theory, There can be segments of the economy, low-skill workers, for instance, that are made permanently worse off. Following what's happened with the China shock and with globalization more broadly, there's been this shift in the returns to skill and returns to a particular kind of skill, basically college-educated human capital. That's like the factor that that America is abundant in, the rest of the world isn't. And that interacts with our politics in weird ways. So as my colleague Will Wilkinson has written, he has a paper called The Density Divide, where he shows that urban density is now the number one predictor of party affiliation. So in other words, Democrats cluster in cities more than they ever have before, and they are more educated than they ever have before. Republicans inversely have lost a lot of their college-educated voters. And so the parties have not just polarized on ideological lines, but polarized in a way that quite overlaps with the free trade status quo. I think there's no doubt Picking up on that theme of for whom the economy works and the consequence of 
globalization and some of the way that we've addressed that in policy. I don't think there's any doubt that the economy today, the American economy works very well for educated people and the places in which they cluster. I think that's, in my own work, that's one of the unmistakable findings that keeps coming back. For that segment of society, things really do look great and increasingly great. And that's where things fracture though, is that if you're below that college education line, your stability and certainty in the economy, your place in the economy seems much more uncertain. And I think the case for the status quo becomes much weaker. In your piece, I didn't take away from the piece that you were saying we shouldn't have welcomed China into the world trading system. I think at least what I took away from it was we didn't do the second step. We stopped at step one and the follow through on understanding and anticipating the consequences for a significant but not overwhelming share of our population has echoed in terms of the consequences in our politics and and now actual policymaking in the Trump administration. Is that right? Or, or would you do something differently on the front end? Would you not have taken step one? I think China is a bit of a sui generis case because of the way their politics has developed in the last 20 years with Xi Jinping amassing and centralizing power and with the Uyghurs rounded up into concentration camps. It stands out among the kind of panoply of other low-wage countries that we trade it with that maybe had similar economic effects. But one of the core predictions of the kind of Panglossian late 90s Whiggish view was that when China becomes capitalist, it'll become democratic. If anything, that's that's the biggest thesis that's been sort of debunked. So I think, you know, Raihan Salam has an Atlantic essay where he talks about PNTR being a mistake. And the point is not that we should never have liberalized trade of China, but that looking back, the folks who worried about their human rights abuses and saw PNTR and normal trade relations with the US as a big leverage point for actually driving more political forms antecedent to the economic reforms look prescient. So I would just put that off to the side. The well, China, what else, the what else should have been on the bargaining table? Just on the purely economic side, I, I guess I do agree with the analysis that trade globalization is not bad in and of itself. It was our lack of response to it. And I have a, a different paper, the free market welfare state, where I sort of walk through why does the US spend much less on you know what the OECD calls active labor market policy, policies that encourage people to, to enter work and to retrain and to have continuing education, to have higher job mobility, those kind of policies, and also safety nets that catch people when they are disemployed by a technology or trade shock. And one of the reasons is that the U.S. was the world economy <laughs> effectively. The U.S., you know, it's for most of the 20th century, it was half of global GDP. Not only that, but as its own continent over here with, you know, Mexico and Canada, it's there's like this, you know, observed phenomena in trade where you tend to trade more if your neighbors and when you're out there isolated in your own continent, the U.S., even if it had unilateral free trade, was sort of autarkic by dint of size, right? And so that privileged position of being a large, relatively closed economy meant that there was much less political pressure to install the kind of social welfare and social insurance systems that you might find in like Denmark or other economies that are, are small, open, and depend a lot on exports for their GDP. So that's part of the you know explanation. But part of the effect is when PNTR was passed, there was this big debate, you know, we want more trade adjustment policy. The, the, the union side was like, you know, you can get your free trade, but we want more trade adjustment. The issue is this was under trade adjustment assistance, which is our the cornerstone program for helping people disrupted by trade, you have to demonstrate that you lost your job 
due to trade. There are Harvard economists with <laughs> that teach econometrics that have difficulty proving which... 20 years later. <laughs> yes, exactly. That have difficulty proving which jobs were actually lost due to trade. And not only that, but if the manufacturing worker can prove he lost his job to trade, does that apply as well to the support staff in the neighborhood that you know made them their breakfast in the morning or whatever? So there's all these downstream industries that also get affected. And so part of the issue here is the kind of complacency that was enabled by being large and big combined with what I would think of as a kind of like Puritan tradition in America to make things very targeted and means tested to a specific population left the economy kind of unawares. And that combined it with also the, the, the structure of education system, because, you know, traditionally creative destruction is not bad. In fact, creative destruction is good. And in fact, countries like China, one of the misnomers is that their industrial policy is premised around protection when actually it's premised around accelerating the forces of creative destruction and moving people aggressively out of failing firms into more productive firms and cycling new technologies in. So, you know, we didn't do that either. So when the jobs were displaced, the workers who might have gone from building furniture or working on an assembly line ended up either on social security disability insurance or in low pay service jobs. Yeah, I want to drill down on that because there is a school of resistance to globalization and trade that is rooted in protectionism and protectionist instincts. That's not how I read your critique at all. And I, I think what's so fascinating about it, and we should talk about the free market welfare state and your case for that, but it's very much a creative destruction, dynamism first argument that to have to fully embrace that and to reap all the upsides of a dynamic economy, we have to be attentive to the consequences of that in a way that makes people feel brought along and not completely exposed to those localized downsides. Talk about that. A lot of the recent writing I've been doing has been trying to bridge this sort of impasse that, especially in the conservative movement, where people don't seem to be talking with each other. So you have some people who they have a kind of need to justify the status quo ex ante as doing really well. So and this is something that's really common just in general. And we conservatives sometimes want to argue is poverty in America is not that bad. Look how great our air conditioning is, you know, what have you. Or GDP wages haven't stagnated. If you do the right price adjustments, then, you know, they've actually gained about $5,000 or what have you over a period of time where that number used to double. <laughs> and so, you know, I come into this debate saying, let's look at a country like Bangladesh as a kind of analog. Bangladesh followed that kind of laissez-faire trade model. And actually, the textbook did pretty well at predicting what would happen. They, they were a low-wage country, and so they, their comparative advantage was in low-wage services. And in 1980, they were about as rich as China. And today, they're about a third of as rich as China, partly because they've, they've walked down this path of call center work, garment factories, and other low-wage labor-intensive work. Now, anyone looking at that in isolation would say, wow, Bangladesh has done really well. Their middle class is X bigger than what it used to be. But part of what I think has to be translated is we don't know the counterfactual, right? And in the U.S. context, I'm often translating between the Tucker Carlson style folks who want to ban driverless cars before they even arrive and the folks that say a lot of things about Schumpeter and creative destruction, but also try to paint a Panglossian picture of, of the status quo. And I think that's actually a kind of hopeful approach because it suggests that actually 
the concerns that the Tucker Carlson folks have are very real, but they're actually addressed by adopting an even more, more aggressive embrace of creative destruction than the other side can even imagine. Yeah, this is where you and I align completely and why I'm always excited about this work, because it, the way I've described it is that economic dynamism is itself a kind of safety net for the economy. If you couple it with an actual safety net that works, as opposed to protectionism, right, where you're trying to cling to something that may become outmoded or where competition, where you're working against competition instead of working with it, that the best way of creating a safety net is even if you look at new firms, for example, new firms, a new firm creation picks up a lot of the slack in the labor market and puts it to better use. And it's kind of this recycling circulatory function in the economy that it's very hard to appreciate because it's so abstract yeah. and it's not a program. It's just a natural process. It's the same way that you can think of as the business bankruptcy code as also part of the, the social welfare system, right? In other countries, you know, I've, I've heard that the German word for debt like has moral connotations with guilt. And so, you know, the Germans don't want the Greeks to default on their debt because it has just moral ladenness. But actually, the U.S. bankruptcy code, because it allows firms to fail and have a fresh and for business owners to have a fresh start and also for personal bankruptcy to people to have a fresh start, it actually is arguably a source of our, our dynamism because people can take risks, make mistakes and not be locked into, you know, indentured servitude. <laughs> Generally something we want to avoid. There are four design principles that your free market welfare state concept is organized around. Can you walk us through that? Sure. Well, you know, part of that paper is trying to reframe the debate around the welfare state. So especially since the Great Society, I think conservative rhetoric on the welfare state has focused on a, a kind of redistributive model. We're taking from the makers and giving to the takers or to the haves, to the have-nots. And it's, it's funny because that, that model is perfectly simpatico with the egalitarian left. Like they, they have the exact same view. They just have a positive valence right. <laughs> on it. But actually, if you try to reconstruct where the welfare state comes from, where social insurance systems come from in history, looking cross-nationally, looking at the U.S. itself, it's better understood as constructing win-win social insurance arrangements, risk pooling arrangements that, for whatever reason, the market fails to provide. Classic example is unemployment insurance. We didn't need unemployment insurance when we were an agrarian society because if we had a potato blight, we all starved. <laughs> there was no heterogeneity for us to pool our risk. But as we grew and industrialized and developed specialization and trade, we have different occupations, different jobs with different exposure, different risks. And so we can pool our money together. And, and if one person's un disemployed, they can have a cushion as they search for a new job, right? So that's just a really simple example. So the four principles that I sort of derive from this view relate to the four things that I think social insurance systems can solve for and that point towards a reform agenda that transcends just austerity on the one hand or ever more generous benefits on the other. And those principles are, you know, one, that the labor market has significant adjustment costs. When people lose their job, they don't immediately roll into a new job, especially if they're living in a rural area or living in an area where there's more broad-based decline. And those labor market frictions can be significant. So that points to an agenda based on using the programs we have to facilitate moving to work, to not squeeze benefits till they're de minimis, but to recognize that you know, maybe maybe a larger unemployment insurance or wage insurance program would have steered some people away from falling into disability insurance because people took disability as a kind of cushion during an adjustment process, but because of the, the way disability is structured, once you're in, it's hard to get out. So that's point number one. Point number two is, is risk-taking entrepreneurship. There's a 
a really interesting paper called Food Stamp Entrepreneurs by a Harvard Business School economist named Gareth Olds. And what he shows, he, he exploits the variation in how food stamps was expanded through the, by different states in the 2000s. And he shows that simply becoming newly eligible for food stamps, not actually collecting them, but becoming eligible, increased the rate of new business formation substantially. In other words, it provided a risk benefit. You weren't actually collecting anything, but the knowledge that if your business failed, your self-employment failed, you had food on the table, enabled people to take more risks. We stumbled into that effect by chance. We, <laughs> was, yeah, there's you no know, design intention. Right. You know, food stamps just was originally designed as, you know, a, a weird log rolling thing with Department of Agriculture to get surplus food <laughs> bought and sold from American farms. It wasn't, and now we call it a nutrition program, but it has this effect of being a, a really interesting social insurance program. The question I pose is taking that design principle consciously, how would we design this program to be an even better tool for risk-taking entrepreneurship? The third effect, you may have to actually remind me what the third one is. The fourth one is migration robustness. And this is less of a, yep. it's a design principle in the sense that, you know, there's often these sort of jejun debates about, you know, the welfare state's not compatible with immigration. And I, I, I try to raise the point, well, actually, there's, there's a vast suite of ways you can design social insurance programs. And there's good reason to think that some ways of designing them are less robust to high rates of immigration than others. So, for example, contributory social insurance programs, programs like Social Security, which you have to pay into, have a covered work history to collect. It's not as if you can just cross the border and start collecting your pension. Those programs turn out to be much more robust to high rates of immigration and, and, and reduce the net fiscal impact of low-skill immigration. In contrast, the public housing programs that are, are common in countries like Austria are fixed. They're in-kind. So if you want to live in public housing in Austria, they call it social housing. They're like these cooperatively owned housing projects. You can qualify immediately if you're below a certain income threshold or what have you. And then you get put into this resource, a house. And all of a sudden, if you're a Syrian refugee or something like that, you have a direct distributional conflict with the natives. And that's a very salient conflict. It's so salient that there's an interesting study by two AU professors showing that the density of public housing in Austria is correlated with the vote share of their far-right party because people see that conflict in a very visible way where they don't see any conflict with new workers coming in and paying into Social Security. That's right. I think the fourth you're asking for the prompt, I think it's benefit portability. Oh, yeah. And this one is quite obvious. There's obviously a lot of conversations around benefit portability. There's a lot of places trying to fund research into benefit portability. So you have you know, concepts of like, take your employer matched retirement savings between jobs and stuff like that. One of the sort of examples I give is why was General Motors bailed out? Was it because we really cared about the cars or was it because we cared about the employee pensions? I think it was, <laughs> I think it was the pensions. And so this is partly trying to drive a wedge in the standard kind of libertarian rhetoric to say, like, well, let's take political economy really seriously. Public choice problems exist. We admit that. If we take that seriously, let's think outside the box. We're not starting at the premise that government is always bad. In a country like Denmark, for example, sample where they have large and very robust public pensions, I have a quote in the paper of the, I think is prime minister or some minister in the Danish government, when one of their biggest wind turbine companies failed because the trade winds shifted, so to speak. He has this funny sort of like dry statement where he's like, you know, it's not Danish social policy to favor particular firms. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to bail you out because we have this existing social welfare system that 
stands outside of the system of production. And it's also, another way to think about it is, it's a rejection of corporatism as a model. So corporatism derives from, you know, Adam Smith's days, the guild system, and the evolution of guilds in countries like Germany, such that, you know, you get a lot of your benefits from your employer, you get your healthcare from your employer in the United States, even. These corporatist models where we expect the employer to not just be the optimal unit of production, but also the provider of certain social benefits, ends up tying things that we perceive as a right, the right not to, you know, the right to healthcare, let's say, to a particular method of production. And when, when those modes of production become outmoded, that creates ancillary problems to the people who lose their healthcare, right? And so separating as much as we can social welfare programs from, from employment and modes of technology I think is ultimately good for dynamism. And you're not the first free market advocate to propose a, a stronger social safety net. You have, I mean, going back to Milton Friedman, you have Charles Murray and others. You mentioned some international examples, and you talk about this in the piece, that free market welfare states like Denmark and Sweden actually have significantly lower amounts of burdensome regulation, and that that's fully compatible with this vision of a stronger social safety net. Talk more about that. Why have we separated those two in our politics? as if you can't have a compatible, pretty aggressive capitalist economy while also having a very aggressive social safety net. Yeah, it's a very uniquely American interpretation of what big government means, right? And yeah, I have to put on my sociologist hat or anthropologist hat to try to answer that question. It probably has something to do with the Cold War dynamics, the anti-communist coalition in America, which generated a lot of this rhetoric around redistribution and and shrinking the size of the state. It goes back even to like the Southern agrarians up in opposition to the New Deal. Because it wasn't merely, you know, if you look at what the Southern Agrarians wrote in their manifesto, they anticipated all the anti-welfare state rhetoric of the new right in the 20th century. But they also were very much opposed to industrialization and technological change. I have a different piece that's behind a paywall called It Still Takes a Nation, where the case against private charity replacing the welfare state, where I point out that, you know, the Southern Agrarians had the more coherent position. Their anti-welfare state position was combined with an anti-capitalist position in a sense, or anti-market position, because they were anti-modernists. They didn't like modernization, ultimately. And what Tyler Cowen has called the package deal of modernity is both a free market and a big government. They both arose at the same time for very similar reasons. They have a common cause, in a sense. So I don't fully know why the debate is a little bit impoverished in the United States, but it is just simply not the case that what Hayek describes as the socialist calculation problem, the problem of central planners trying to manage an economy. That points to not nationalizing industries. <laughs> that points to... It's a good uh, thing no one's proposing nationalizing any industries uh, these days. Yeah. I mean, it points to not trying to micromanage the economy. It doesn't point to not having public pensions. And I think maybe in the road to serfdom, Hayek says in a footnote that, at least as he was writing, that the United Kingdom was more socialistic than, than Sweden at the time. The United States is never going to be Sweden. It's never going to be Denmark. Vastly different traditions. My argument is we can be a bit more like Canada, right? <laughs> That's quite biased. For listeners who don't know, you are a confirmed Canadian. I think this is also contributed to by some rhetoric on the left that, oh, you don't like socialism. We'll look at these countries in, in Europe with their generous social welfare states. That's socialism. And so there's a labeling problem that's driven by folks who actually are promoting actual socialism to say, don't be afraid, that already exists over there. So there's actually from, I think from both sides, not to do a, the both sides thing, but there, there is a, a nomenclature problem and a bit of a motivated reasoning problem right. as well. 
from folks trying to extend the mantle of socialism or market economies in certain directions where they don't they don't quite fit. Yeah, so my colleague Will Wilkinson again has a really interesting piece called Public Policy After Utopia, where he says, let's just dispense with all this ideology, all these sort of big ideal theories, abstract theories of whether it's libertarianism on the one hand or Marxism on the other. And let's just like look around the world and if we can point at places that seem to be working where we say, oh, that that place looks like it's a nice place to live and people are happy and free, then let's work backwards from that to see exactly why those systems produce the results that we sort of intuitively approve of rather than beginning with this high abstract theory and, and working down. You know, one of the things I do in my piece is, you know, I take the heritage index of economic freedom, which is four subcomponents. If I can remember them all, it's government spending, business regulation, labor market regulation, and openness to trade. And just, I remove government spending. And so I just have what I think of as the more regulatory sides of their index, which are, you know, again, trade openness, business regulation, labor market regulation. And then I just simply regress that against the OECD's measure of social protection, which is basically uh, trying to get at not just how much government spending there is, but what social policies are going to put a floor beneath people's incomes. And it turns out there's a really striking positive correlation between countries that have strong social floors on how far you can fall through income support systems and economic freedom, such that the countries of the OECD, they basically cluster along the line, right? And in one corner, you have countries that are highly regulated, highly regulated capitalism, but with very low transfers. And that has a certain intuitive logic to it. You know, you have Greece or Italy, for example, you have a lot of family-owned businesses that are passed down through the generations. You might not have really robust active labor market policies and unemployment insurance or whatever. Maybe if you're a public worker, I don't know. <laughs> but you have the, the safety net of your family, you have the safety net of intergenerational wealth. And then on the other hand, you have a country like Denmark is in the opposite corner where they have at-will employment, very little labor market regulation. The average Dane, every year, one in five Danes switch jobs. So it's the highest job mobility rate in, in the world. Why? Well, because if they lose their job, if they're fired at will, in the short term, they have 90% of their wages replaced. So if they have a mortgage payment, they make their mortgage payment. But those, that wage replacement doesn't last forever. I'm not sure the exact timeline, but within six months, if, you're, if you haven't found a new job, basically the, you get brought to the job search and assistance center and they try to find you someone who matches your skills. If you don't have skills, they try to give you new skills. And so there's like this operating system that makes their economy even more dynamic and, and more flexible. That's the reality of how countries cluster. The striking thing is the United States is the, the main outlier. <laughs> it, it's off in this other corner of relatively low tax, low spend government in comparison to Europe and also relatively open markets. If there is some political economic force that pulls countries towards this line, my contention is that either we work to pull ourselves towards the top right corner where you have larger transfers but less regulation, or we will be pulled into the reactionary corner where you have protectionism, regulation of industry and, and labor markets, and relatively low welfare spending. And the reactionary corner seems to be ascendant right now. So if you were to guess based on our current politics, which of the two parties is most likely to enact a free market welfare state, or at least embrace that vision, which of the two would it be? You know, it's funny, I, I originally wrote the paper as you know, olive branch to my, my you know, my libertarian friends, because I'm, I'm kind of a post-libertarian <laughs> trying to trying to explain my view. But the first caucus that actually called me in to talk about were the New Democrats. <laughs> so, you know, you know, in a way there's, in a way I'm trying to speak to the moderates in both parties where you have 
you know, Democrats who they're not anti-market, they're not anti-capitalist. They actually love markets. They love dynamism. They love innovation. Sometimes they're the biggest supporters of pro-innovation policies, but they also don't have the same ideological baggage that prevents them from like increasing the federal budget by a dime. That is exactly where, if I were to put the mark on the spectrum, it's the new Dems that seem to most obviously align here. And in a way, they're what the party is even more than it used to be. Like the AOCs and the squads of the world get a lot of attention because they have a lot of Twitter followers, but... New Dems are the biggest caucus. Exactly. And I think there are counterparts on the right as well. So people try to lump the folks like Josh Hawley or, or Marco Rubio as the conservative populists, like the outliers. My perception is that like the Freedom Caucus types, the Tea Party generation is much harder to work with <laughs> virtually anything. And there are ways in which you know, Josh Hawley might use nationalist rhetoric or, or Rubio might you know, frame the debate in terms of you know, strong families created by strong labor markets. But there's opportunities for those kind of heterodox conservatives to work across the aisle. And ironically, with the kind of more neoliberal Democrats, <laughs> there's a lot of think pieces to crying. Before we leave this topic and go to economic nationalism or economic patriotism, depending on your flavor, I want to talk about the moral hazard pushback. And you've kind of touched on this already, that when you look at a country like Denmark, you don't see the evidence, the moral hazard argument against their system that a lot of opponents of your vision for a free market welfare state would would argue is the likely result. That you know, a lot of the pushback from the right has been if you make it easier not to work, if you create a more comfortable cushion, people will take advantage of that. And that that's that is a real threat. And even a lot of advocates for policies like UBI, they make explicit, and I don't think this is not what you're arguing, but a lot of advocates for UBI would say it's inevitable that technology-based job disruption is going to come. It's going to wipe out huge swaths of the labor market. They're not going to be able to return. And so UBI and a stronger safety net is our way of compensating them for, sorry, you lost your job and you have no place in the productive economy anymore. So you know, kind of go to the video games and, and hobbies economy, but at least you get UBI to kind of soften that and make that less severe of a transition. So I think some of, some of the concern about moral hazard actually is driven by and reinforced by some of the advocates for a stronger safety net. That's clearly not the case that you're making, but talk about the moral hazard argument and why that doesn't add up. Well, first of all, part of the effects are you could you could interpret like the risk-taking entrepreneurship effect as a moral hazard effect, right? You have a safety net, so you're going to go start a business because you're in some way socializing the risk, right? The first thing is there can be socially positive moral hazard effects. The second point is, you know, in a lot of cases, the reason we have Unemployment insurance, for example, is because there there are market failures in the private provision of unemployment insurance. If I could go buy a contract for losing my job and then stop showing up to work, <laughs> then that's a moral hazard effect generated by a private unemployment insurance system. So in, in many cases, the reason we have public provision of the insurance is precisely because there is moral hazard. Because if, if there wasn't moral hazard, then there wouldn't be the market failure in the first place. I think the bigger complaint and potentially more valid complaint has to do with, you know, what Paul Ryan used to call the hammock versus the safety net. And I think a lot of the commentary and the ways of thinking, especially in Congress on the right and even the center left, are really generationally coded. They're people who lived through and remember the welfare reform debates and AFDC, Aid for Families with Dependent Children. And they have an interpretation of why AFDC was bad for work, in which it's because we gave 
single moms money for nothing. But it wasn't just that. It was also that if you earned a dollar, you lost a dollar, <laughs> right? And so there are these massive welfare cliffs and clawbacks in the program that were amounted to, you know, 100% marginal taxes on, on single moms trying to get work. There's sometimes a, just a, a kind of hasty conflation between, you know, what the cause and effect of, of, of those things are. One of my arguments is that, you know, these more universal systems, systems that don't test for income or if they do, it's quite high up the income ladder, systems that target a particular risk and that are temporary rather than permanent, that don't attach tons of asset tests and monitoring and having to work, visit your case worker and all this stuff, that those kind of systems actually reduce the, the moral hazard of government in, in some way. So by contrast, for, for instance, just to give you an example, TANF, the welfare program, such that it currently still exists because it's kind of been eroded over the years, it tries to target to the truly needy, right? And there's, there's again, this kind of odd bedfellows coalition between the right that I think has a kind of Puritan poorhouse mentality where like back in the uh, early you know, 18th century America, there were these poorhouses and they had what was literally called an overseer of the poor, who was often the bishop in the town and would, you know, was, it was their responsibility to, to monitor the poor, make sure they weren't shirking and stuff like that. And we've kind of copied that model forward, only now it's uh, someone with a, you know, it's a social worker and their job is basically to make sure you do all your paperwork and jump through all these hoops that we put on poor people to access pu public benefits. And then there are folks on the left who also, you know, are tacitly enabling of that system because they also want to target to the truly needy. And they don't like the idea of Bill Gates getting the same benefit as anyone else. But it leads to a status quo where the folks that are in these programs end up becoming adapted to the bureaucracy of poverty and end up becoming quite adept at it. You know, it's such that like, you know, we see all this bunching in the EITC, for, for example, people, people know how to maximize their EITC benefit. These are very savvy. People are smart. Even people without education are pretty smart. And especially over, the, over time, they learn how to game systems. And the more cynicism we embed in the system, the more that cynicism will be reflected back on government. So that notwithstanding, you know, UBI is kind of harebrained idea, right? I think it, someone like Andrew Yang, who's, who's running on it, it might be an interesting conversation starter to talk about the issues he cares about, like automation. For my part, I, I look at UBI as impractical. We're not going to uh, spend $3 trillion. We can barely get a continuing resolution passed. <laughs> but there are some principles that you can derive from UBI. It's universality. It's lack of means testing. It's cash. So it's, like, it's neutral to what good, good or service we're providing. So, you know, some of the arguments for UBI have inspired my push for a child allowance. If America had a child allowance like Canada, which is approximately $6,400 per child per year, flat, it phases out at higher incomes, but it's flat. That would represent more cash assistance than even the most generous TANF program in the country. Hypothetically, if we passed a program like that, if we passed a universal child allowance, a monthly payment for, for families with children, we set the level at the median cash benefit in TANF, we abolish TANF, what have we done? We've moved a bunch of people who are locked into poverty, in part because they're locked into the poverty bureaucracy, into a system that they share in common with middle-class Americans, and that doesn't penalize them if they move up the ladder. That 
to me, is taking the best parts of UBI, but without all the, the fantasy. Yeah. I struggle a little bit in this conversation because I agree. And it's not always interesting to listen to two people agreeing violently about, <laughs> about policy. But the bureaucracy of poverty and the well-intentioned in many cases, but hazardous complication that we introduce into our benefit structure, I think is, is something that we just have really failed to appreciate. And particularly on the right, I think we're worried about the wrong things when it comes to the social safety net. And we should be much more worried about the complication of being poor. How these programs are in effect, exactly as you said, putting people at a disconnect with the middle class that we're hoping that they'll enter instead of giving some kind of shared benefit structure that doesn't include all these cliffs. And, and folks like Paul Ryan and others have talked a lot about some of those shortcomings in the welfare state. So it hasn't been completely lacking on the right. But I think this is an area where, where we strongly agree. Talk a little bit more about UBI and about Andrew Yang, because at a 30,000 foot level, he would be the person that somebody could, if you're squinting, you kind of would think that's, that's a little bit like what Sam's proposing here. Because Yang is, is not an anti-dynamist. He's a pro-dynamist. He's not saying we should stop automation or stop technological advances. He's saying we should treat them as if they're inevitable now and erect a, a structure that provides a better safety net for the looming robot apocalypse that's coming. Now, I don't agree that that apocalypse is coming, and maybe you don't either, but where does this thesis go off the tracks for you? Well, first, I'll speak to what I agree with and appreciate about Andrew. He is doing something very clever with his rhetoric where he begins by acknowledging all the most pessimistic predictions. He basically speaks to the, the truck driver who's worried about losing their job, even rides along with them. And he signals a lot of credibility about caring about those issues. But then when he talks about UBI, in part, he says, like almost like verbatim, we need to accelerate this transition. <laughs> right? And so I try to do something quite similar where, you know, I want to pass the Turing test, so to speak, that I understand why folks on the right are pissed off mm. and why there's, there's this conservative populist moment. And then give them policies, ideas that not only speak to their concerns and are framed to address their concerns, but also, in a sense, accelerate the transition that, that we're also worried about. Because I think actually the biggest risk is not that robots take all our jobs, but that they don't. The risk that we get locked into a sort of technological stagnation that we don't break out of, partly because it's sort of like walking down a, a dead-end path. So where, where I think... And he, by the way, the evidence is a lot stronger that that's, that is the thing to be worried about. Right. The, yeah, totally. And again, the stories that we tell ourselves. Now, Peter Thiel says something about his concept of definite optimism. He wants somebody who Thiel talks about the need to have a very concrete vision of the future. You know, when JFK will go to the moon, that's that sort of thing. So how do you square that with him voting for Trump? Well, part of it is, and he said this in places, that you need someone who's extremely pessimistic to set the stage for definite optimism. Like, until we recognize that America could be far better than it currently is, until we wash away all the sort of apologies for wage stagnation and stuff like that, then, you know, we, we actually have to grasp at, at how far short we're falling before we can see how far we can go. So there's a, an element to that, of that in, in Andrew Yang, too, where, like, his extreme pessimism, like American Carnage-style pessimism, is, is oddly superimposed with this definite optimism. And I think that's actually the right way to be. Where he goes off the rails, I, I honestly, I don't think he goes off the rails in that many places. I, unfortunately, the, the way he goes off the rails the most is with his signature policy proposal, <laughs> the freedom dividend, which 
I think he's imbibed a little bit too much futurism and not enough macroeconomics because we're not facing, there might be a world where UBI becomes relevant, but we should see it to believe it. The singularity might be near or it might be (laughs) a few centuries away. It's really so far we have AI that can make our faces swap and factor really large numbers. We might soon have AI that drives cars and those things will cause dislocations. But in a way, it might just return us to a rate of dislocation that we used to have and (laughs) used to enjoy. So, you know, going back to one of your points earlier about job churn and dynamism being sort of an implicit safety net because it keeps people cycling through the system, it also clears out a lot of deadwood. You know, one of the reasons why the taxi unions in New York or what have you, or the auto, American auto workers have so much power and why there seems to have been this accretion of rent seeking throughout the US economy from NIMBYs in cities to intellectual property to financialization. Partly when you have relatively stagnant GDP and stagnant productivity growth, you don't get the churn that keeps everyone on their toes. And anyone who is sitting in the chair when the music stops and the game of musical chairs has had 30 years to try to bolt that chair to the ground, right? So I would welcome with open arms much more technological churn and dynamism. And I think one of the reasons why we're so fearful of something like driverless cars is in part because the rest of our economy is relatively static. And when there's one thing that changes, it's very salient. We see, we see that one change. And in a way, the solution to that one change is to have that change occurring across the economy in every different sector. Yeah. Again, violent agreement. The challenge that I've run into myself is that when you talk about this with policymakers or even just average people, they are so overwhelmed by the story of the inverse of what we're talking about, that the thing to be worried about is too much change. And even well-intentioned folks, I mean, Ben Sass, as an example, you know, a lot of his, a lot of the premise of his argument is about we're living through this unprecedented period of rapid change and, and disruption. And you hear that kind of argument played out all the time as the premise for a set of policymaking solutions to imaginary problems, to, to problems that just simply don't exist right now, instead of being worried about what we're talking about here, which is too little advances, too little disruption, too little dynamism. And getting people to invert that is very difficult because there's a, you know, there's an entire media industrial, political industrial complex that's organized around getting them to think that there is something to fear around the corner. And I totally agree. I think that the soil for that doesn't exist in an environment where the economy is growing and it is more dynamic and doesn't feel as static and people aren't clinging to what they have now for dear life because they feel like their position's insecure. I think that's a good place to take a quick break and then we'll jump back in. And that's it for this week's episode of The Deep Dive. Tune in next week for part two of my conversation with Sam Hammond. As a reminder, you can find me on Twitter at LatiriDC. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, be well, and thanks again for listening.